Welcome, everyone, to the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. I am your co-host, Licensed Battlefield Guide Eric Lindblade, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Licensed Battlefield Guide Jim Hessler. We are coming to you tonight from the world-famous Reliance Mind Saloon in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. So, Jim, what's tonight's topic to start our second season? Well, Eric, tonight we kick off season two, season two of the Battle of Gettysburg podcast with the story of an attorney with New York ties who was ordered to defend a position on low ground. But he lost his cavalry screen and decided instead to move his command without orders to higher ground. Now, of course, I'm not referring to Union General Dan Sickles, but instead the equally dastardly Union General Francis Barlow. Did Barlow defend the high ground? Did he disobey orders? Why did he do it, and how did it turn out for him? Find out on this installment of the Battle of Gettysburg podcast, as again we kick off Season 2 with Barlow's Knoll, or if you prefer, Sickles of the First Day, Part 1. So Eric, before we get started, we've been growing like crazy on social media. How can people get in touch with us? You can find us all over social media. Uh, first on Facebook at the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast, on Twitter at Gettysburg Pod, on Instagram at the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast. You can also email us at GettysburgPodcast at gmail.com. Jim, tell us a little bit about tonight's sponsor. Well, Eric, the episode is brought to us once again, by our good friend Michael Hamula and his executive search firm of RPM Search Group. You know, it's been said that General Barlow was brought into command of an 11th Corps division because General Howard lacked the snap needed to whip his men into shape. Well, I can tell you, Michael Hamula and RPM Search Group certainly have the snap needed to whip your company into shape. If you're looking for senior and executive level talent, today's Edelbert Ames and Leopold von Gilses, then look no further than RPM Search Group. Visit their website at www.rpmsearchgroup.com and see how they help companies in the United States and around the world for our global audience. Identify, evaluate, and hire talent that will improve performance and defend your high ground. So we want to thank Michael once again for sponsoring this episode of the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. I spoke to Michael over the holidays. He's real happy with how this has been going. And if you or your company would like to sponsor an episode of the Battle of Gettysburg podcast, please reach out to us and uh, we'll let you know how you can do that. So, Eric, we've got a growing audience. We've picked up a lot of new listeners since season one. We're happy to have everybody on board. It might be worthwhile just to kind of pause for a minute here and reintroduce ourselves to the audience, especially to the new listeners. Let them know who we are and, you know, what we're all about and why we're doing this. Eric, you want to start? Yeah, I'm Eric Lindblade. I've been a battlefield guide here at Gettysburg National Military Park since 2016. I'm also the author of Fight as Long as Possible, The Battle of Newport Barracks, and grew up in North Carolina, but have lived in Gettysburg now for almost 11 years. So Gettysburg's my home, and it's, of course, where we bring the podcast to you uh, every time we record. Right. And again, I'm licensed battlefield guide Jim Hessler. I've been a guide here at Gettysburg since 2003. I'm author of three published works on the Battle of Gettysburg, probably best known for Sickles at Gettysburg, which I authored in 2009. I've also co-written Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg with our friend and colleague Wayne Motts. And in 2019, co-wrote and published Gettysburg's Peach Orchard with our friend and colleague Britt Eisenberg. 
So as Jim said, the podcast is continuing to grow. We are heard in all 50 states, 37 foreign nations right now. I was actually looking at our numbers. 4% of our listenership is outside of the United States, which is pretty cool if you ask me. That is cool. So Finland, didn't we hear from somebody from Finland over yes, the holidays? Yes, I believe we actually have all of Scandinavia now. Excellent. So we might very well be the most popular American Civil War podcast in Scandinavia. Well, welcome Finland. Also, in the last few days, we have reached a pretty big milestone for the podcast. We've been doing this for right at now six months. We started out maybe doing a couple episodes, see how this goes. We never knew it was going to grow to the extent that it did. We are right now a top 100 history podcast, according to Apple Podcasts, which is really the main show in town. About 60 to 70% of all listeners to podcasts listen via Apple. So to be a top 100 podcast in the history category throughout the world, we're ecstatic. We would have never thought that was true, but hey, it's all thanks to you guys and your continued support. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Erica. Real thankful for everybody and everything that they've done to uh, keep us going. Obviously, we had a lot of highlights in season one. We're looking forward to bringing people more great stuff in season two. And also, if you are out there, um, one of the best ways you can help the show If you are listening on the podcast platform of your choice and you have the ability to write a review for us, please do. Reviews help people get a sense of what the show is about, and it's from you, the audience. It's not from us, so it's sort of an unbiased, or if you are a biased opinion, go ahead. We don't really care as long as it's good. Uh, So certainly leave us a five-star review if you feel we deserve it and help us promote the show. It helps drive those algorithms that I don't fully understand, but certainly helps get the word out about us. If you can, leave us a review, help the show we greatly appreciate and to everyone that has written a review and taken that time thank you so very much from jim and i so if you've been listening to the show in season one or if you've been following us on social media you know that we have a special event coming up this spring on may 9th jim you want to tell our listeners a little bit more about that yeah i'd be happy to eric you know i think 2020 is shaping up to be a really exciting year i think we've both of us have some really cool battlefield tours scheduled some speaking engagements but none none are more special than the battle of gettysburg podcasts first annual battlefield seminar as eric said may 9th 2020 mark the dates on your calendar the topic is going to cover for those of you who were with us in season one you know what was our most controversial episode to date. We dared to do What If Jackson Was at Gettysburg, which was sort of a combined assessment of Jackson, Richard Ewell, the Second Corps, Culp's Hill, all that stuff kind of thrown in. Well, we're going to cover that on May 9th with a classroom seminar and a battlefield tour. So plan on being away from home for probably about seven hours or so. Good portion of the day, but we'll try to make it worth your while. Eric and I are still working with some partners on venue arrangements, cost, and things like that. So as soon as we have more details, we're going to share them with you. But you want to at least plan on being in Gettysburg, May 9th, 2020. And you want to spend that day with Jim and Eric and not anybody else. So you make sure you have that on your calendar. I'll tell you, Eric, we put the event page up on Facebook just as kind of a placeholder. We've had like 6,000 people look at that thing. It's crazy. And like how many interested, like 300 or something? Yeah, I think we saw we had over 300 interested in this tour. So I don't know how big this thing is going to be. But once we uh, announce ticketing information, how to get that, I'd probably recommend 
get your seat early because uh, right. I think this thing could sell out pretty quick. Yeah, when we announce it, swarm to your nearest computer or device or telephone and you make those reservations. But we don't have the details yet. They're coming soon. Again, just part of what's really going to be an exciting 2020 for Battlefield Guides, Jim and Eric. Hopefully we'll see you on a lot of tours and programs this year. But May 9th, 2020. Eric, can I keep repeating that date or you think they got it by now? What was that date again? May 9th, 2020. You got it. Jackson at Gettysburg. Epic. So as we get into this topic, Barlow's Knoll, the 11th Corps, really the fighting north of town on July 1st, as we always do, we put out to you, the listeners, for questions and comments on each of our upcoming episodes, because we really want you to be a part of this show. Uh, this is as much your podcast as it is ours. So as we were sort of having the conversation on this, a number of our listeners really talked about how excited they were about this topic because they said it's you know, one that really doesn't get covered very much. And I think this is part and parcel of July 1st, as one of our listeners, Ron, said on Facebook, it's kind of the forgotten day of the battle, July 1st. Some of the heaviest fighting in the American Civil War is on that day, but it kind of gets glossed over when we look at things on July 2nd and July 3rd. So hopefully we can kind of enlighten you a little bit about this and what we think is a very interesting part of the Battle of Gettysburg. Yeah, I mean, Sickles didn't even include July 1st in the battle. It like wasn't part of the real battle to him when he testified before the joint committee, he basically just said that July 2nd and 3rd were the battles. So, I mean, could we be disagreeing with Dan Sickles tonight on this, the Dan Sickles podcast? Yeah, I think we're disagreeing with Dan uh, Sickles. Wow, 2020 wow. is off to an earth-shattering start. Uh, people do not expect that. No. Bobo hates us right now. As we do a day one stop as guides and kind of our, what we would consider our overview tour, usually we're stopping on McPherson's Ridge. We're stopping on Oak Hill at, by the Peace Light, but how often do we ever go to Barlow's Knoll unless people really have an interest in it? Mm. There's not even a park tour stop there. So it's on the map, but it's not really part of the auto tour where you're really getting out, stopping, taking in the ground, and understanding mm -hmm. it. So hopefully, you know, one of the things we hope we can do with this is after you listen and you visit Gaysburg, hopefully you'll come out here and walk some of this ground as you're out there. Yeah, I mean, logistically, let's face it, a lot of our battlefield interpretation often is driven by ease of access. And Barlow's Knoll, as we'll talk during the course of the two programs here, Barlow's Knoll, kind of the extreme Union Army right flank of July 1st, doesn't really lend itself into a concise first day overview tour when you've got to kind of move on to other things, you know, for the two, two and a half, three hours that you might have the average family with you on the battlefield. So yeah, Barlow's Knoll has always had though a soft spot for me, Eric. Uh, when my wife and I moved here 20 years ago, we actually live within a stone's throw of Barlow's Knoll. I'm not going to tell people where we live, but it's near nearby to Barlow's Knoll. So I've always had an interest in it. And as I said in the intro, intro the whole sickles of the first day it really has a lot of similarities multiple listeners pointed this out on social media but obviously that's a fact that eric and i have also always been aware of so we're going to get into all this stuff over the uh, course of the conversation here adding to the overlooked nature of this part of the field brings us to our first listener question of the night asking the guides is that what we'll call this feature you know, I don't really know if it has a name because we've really been taking listener questions since day one. It's kind of what we do and what we enjoy. And so, ah, yeah, truth. I guess it's just part of what makes the Battle of Gettysburg podcast special. You speak truth, Eric. 
So enough about that. Let's actually get to the question. Yes. Oh, was there a question? Yes. yes. There, there, okay, there, great, there, great. there were many questions uh, for this episode. It's probably the most questions we've had so far. But listener Michael on Facebook reached out to us, and he had a question about the area around what's called today Barlow's Knoll. Mm-hmm. He says, why does the Gettysburg National Military Park allow the total obstruction of the view <laughs> from Barlow's Knoll by allowing seven-foot-high stalks of corn to be grown right up to the park road? Jiminy Christmas. Got, wish I had an answer for that. Uh... <laughs> we had a lot of corn on the battlefield in the summer of 2019. 2019 was the summer of corn. Yeah, corn everywhere. Infested it, the battlefield. It's not just Barlow's Knoll, the area around the Peach Orchard, everything else. Sickles Avenue. Yeah, I didn't know when I was on Sickles Avenue, was I at Gettysburg or was I at Antietam? I didn't know. But one of the things I did hear is that I guess because of some of the issues in the Midwest this year of some droughts and flooding, that I guess the Midwest corn was not yielding what they did. So I guess a lot of the farmers around here who lease out the battlefield decide, hey, corn prices are up. Guess what I'm growing this year? Corn. So that's one of the reasons I heard, whether it's true or not, I am not an agricultural expert by Mm -hmm. any means. That's just what I heard. But yeah, it did make some challenges for us this year. And I think some of our listeners as well as visitors are probably a little frustrated by corn this year. You really couldn't escape it. But I didn't, I guess it never really occurred to me though, that we were feeding America, you know, while we were sort of complaining about our comparatively small interpretation challenges, who knew, you know, that Barlow's Knoll and Sickles Avenue were, were feeding America. And not only that, feeding the world. Feeding the world. Feeding the world. Once again, Dan Sickles doing amazing things for people. A global humanitarian. Mm-hmm. Even for our listeners in Finland. When we interpret the Battle of Gettysburg, when we read about the battle, when we study it, we often view, quote unquote, the battlefield as just that. It's a place where armies fought. But in the summer of 1863, before the armies converged around Gettysburg, this was someone's home. It's their livelihood. This is a crossroads community in South Central Pennsylvania of no real major significance to what it's going to see later. So when we look at this often, there's the human side of the battle that involves the armies. But what about some of the civilians? What are the folks living there? Have. And I think this part of the battlefield has a really interesting family history. Sure, Jim, could you tell sure. us a little more about that? Yeah, you know, as the old joke goes, battles are not always fought in national parks. People actually did live out here. Now, Eric and I have been referring to this as Barlow's Knoll, which is sort of the battle-specific name of the terrain feature for the Union General Francis Barlow. But purists may prefer to call it Blocker's Knoll because the strip of ground that we're going to spend the majority of the time on this episode talking about this, the knoll, was basically part of the John and David Blocker farm, Blocker's owned property, which was basically sandwiched between sort of the Carlisle Table Rock roads on the western boundary of their property and the old Harrisburg road kind of on the south and eastern side of their property. But John Blocker had bought the property in the 1820s and then had deeded it to his son David in 1862. So both father and son and respective families were occupying this property at the time of the battle. Now, what we seem to think is in 1863, John Blocker, the father, was living in an old house, probably very close to the Carlisle Table Rock Road intersection. And David, the son, was actually living in the house where the current house on the property stands. 
Now, there's some debate over when the current Blocker House was actually constructed. Family history apparently says the house was built in the 1840s. It's present in the 1857 county survey. In all likelihood, the Blocker House at the time of the battle was probably about a one and a half story farmhouse, maybe similar to the Weikert, the Warfield, the Slider properties that we see on other parts of the battlefield today before being raised to a bigger two-story building in the uh, 1890s. So the house that's on the property today is bigger, not quite same style as what would have been there in 1863s, and today is privately owned, I should add. Eric, what else you want to tell us about the blockers? Yeah, one of the things I find interesting about the family is that they were pacifists. I find it really ironic how many pacifists have Civil War battles fought on their property during the war. Just one of those little odd bits of history, but they were members of the German Baptist faith. These are more commonly known as Dunkers. So when you think of the white church at Antietam, Dunker Church, same faith, same religious views. One of the interesting notes I found as I was researching the family is that David uh, was actually a blacksmith by trade, and he expressed his pacifism by, after the battle, finding bayonets and other military items on the battlefield, and he actually forged cooking utensils from them. So basically taking swords and not turning them into plowshares, but in this case, cooking utensils. So kind of a neat little tidbit there that I think shows the religious views and worldviews that this family had in 1863. Cooking in religion on the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. We're expanding as we start season two here. So a little bit more about Barlow or Blocker's Knoll, as you will. As we said before, it is kind of sandwiched in between the Carlisle Road to the west and the old Harrisburg Road to the east. Rock Creek, which more or less runs in kind of a north-south direction, also borders the north and the eastern side of, of this knoll. But the knoll itself is probably about 30 feet higher in elevation than the immediately surrounding vicinity. So it is high ground. If any of you have ever been out on the battlefield and have stood more on the uh, town side of the knoll and looked out, it appears to be an an imposing knoll that is going to block the view of enemy troop movements coming towards Gettysburg in that direction. We'll talk more about that as well, but certainly an imposing piece of ground. So again, we'll, you know, the purists prefer blockers knoll. Most battle students today, though, refer to it as Barlow's knoll for General Barlow. So even though the Blocker family is associated with this property, the vicinity that's going to see fighting was not completely owned by them. There was actually a really decent-sized landmark in the area, a building that is unfortunately no longer with us. Jim, do you have a little bit more about that? I do, Eric. So another notable landmark in and around Barlow's Knoll was the Adams County Almshouse, which was built in 1820 to care for the poor of Adams County. Now, the Almshouse was originally three buildings, might have been up to as many as five buildings by the time of the battle. So the Adams County Almshouse started out as a house for the employment and support of the poor, but that expanded also to include the mentally ill and the developmentally challenged. Yeah, and I think when you look at this, this is one area where 19th century society really deviates a lot from what we have today. 
when you think about individuals with those needs, really demand specialized care. You're throwing everybody into the same place. So this is not a wonderful place to be. Really, it's individuals that cannot either care for themselves or their families can't care for them. And they kind of just become really wards of the state, wards for of the lack county, of a better right, term. Right. Um, so really kind of a tragic area there and a lot of sad stories that related to the almshouse. Yeah, there really is. And I've got an account here from the uh, 1886 files at the Adams County Historical Society. Quote, when patients became greatly excited and ungovernable, they were removed to cells or dungeons in the basement of the building. The Committee on Lunacy finally ordered the removal of these cells and were eventually informed that the directors had abandoned their use. But to your point, Eric, you know, in our sort of quote-unquote more enlightened time in 2019, uh, that's not really how we would think of being as optimal care of the, uh, of the uh, poor and the ill. Just so you know, Jim, it's actually 2020 as of our recording right now. You know it is, Eric, but I think my mind is still stuck on the success of season one in 2019. I really forget that we've started a new decade of the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. Well, you know, we can't rest on our laurels. We got to keep pushing onward and upward. As we go into our second decade. Think about that. So really, in many ways, the individuals that were at the almshouse were folks that society kind of forgot, unfortunately. But there were some notable individuals with notable connections to the town and Gettysburg history that at one time lived at the almshouse. Yeah, Eric, probably the best known resident of the almshouse would be James Wade. Many people may know was the father of Mary Virginia Jenny Wade, who was, of course, the only civilian killed during the battle. Now, James Wade was incarcerated uh, at the almshouse. His disease was listed as quote-unquote derangement. But James Wade had kind of a long and checkered history in the uh, town of Gettysburg. In the late 1830s, he was charged with using force of arms to commit fornication, which begat a male bastard child. And by the way, folks, these are all actual quotes. The male bastard child became James a wade james the senior in 1841 was then accused of setting arson to a stable in bendersville 1842 assault and battery 1843 the charge was dropped but in 1850 assault and battery again which he was found guilty of and also indicted on larceny in the same year so 1850 must have been a uh, banner year for james wade finally in 1852 his wife Ann, the mother of Jenny Wade, uh, had him declared insane, and he was subsequently committed to the almshouse, and we believe that he died at the almshouse. I think there's some inability to find confirmation of that, but James Wade, again, would have been a uh, resident of the property during the Battle of Gettysburg. And I should add, when we think of the almshouse, for lack of a better term, complex, You're going to see farm fields, you're going to see animals. It's basically, in many ways, kind of self-sufficient as these people were working the ground to support themselves and to support the operation of the almshouse. Yeah, that's really right, Eric. It was a complex, as you use the term. One of the main buildings of the almshouse also had a large cupola. Now, I'm not getting a little bit ahead of ourselves on this, but I did just want to point out that on the morning of July 2nd, 
Confederate General Isaac Trimble would later write that on the morning of July 2nd, he and Robert E. Lee actually visited the cupola of the almshouse, and Lee used that prominent point to basically survey the nearby countryside when he was considering operations on the Confederate left flank or against the Union right flank. So this general area could have been visited by none other than Robert E. Lee himself during the course of the battle, but I'm getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. To me, as I look at this, we often think about the civilian accounts we have of the battle. I'd really be interested to know a little bit more about you. Know, what did these individuals do during the battle? Did some stay? Did some flee? What was the plan for care of these individuals? I mean, I just have in my mind this idea of James Wade, you know, rubbing shoulders with Robert E. Lee as Lee passes through. Uh, kind of an interesting sort of clash well, he in probably, many ways there. Yeah, he probably did something like that. And then Trimble yelled at the guy or something like that. But no, that's a, that's a great question, Eric. I've never dived into that too deeply. I bet our friends at the Adams County Historical Society might have something on file. If they don't, I don't know who would. But it's a great point. Yeah, and if anybody knows, please let us know. It's something kind of just came to mind that I thought about. It really wasn't in my show notes. But you know, nonetheless, if you know the answer, let us know. We're always learning ourselves. Blockers Knoll shared real estate with the Almshouse Cemetery, or what you would consider to be a potter's field. Notes indicate that this could possibly have been the second potter's field established in Adams County, which of course would make it very old. Some of the oldest graves noted in the cemetery today date back to 1843, 1853, and it is still in use today as, you know, the county's basically Poppers Field. So that cemetery, it's part of Blocker's Knoll. Interestingly enough, it doesn't come up in a lot of battle accounts, but is anybody who has been out onto that part of the field and has driven through it knows that the cemetery is in fact a prominent landmark. Yeah, folks, when we do go out there, often make note of that. And their first thought is, well, this is a military cemetery. You know, were soldiers buried here immediately after the battle? And no, it's just part of the almshouse complex, but it certainly does draw a lot of attention when you're in that area. Yeah, great point. And before somebody from the Adams County Historical Society dings me, I was looking through my notes here while you were talking. There's actually somebody there dated to 1829. And I think that's the oldest grave that that I've currently found there. Could be a lot older ones. Many of the headstones are worn. Very difficult, if not impossible, to read. And the reality is... Adams County was not spending a lot of money on headstones for these individuals. Yeah. You're, you're getting the bare basic burial and that's it. Yeah. And like I said, they still don't. You can go through the cemetery today and you will still see current graves in there. So as we've said, Eric, Blockers Knoll would probably be the appropriate name for this landmark. But, you know, the battle people, we call it Barlow's Knoll. Eric, what can you tell us about Union General Francis Barlow? Well, Francis Channing Barlow was born on October 19th, 1834 in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, he was the son of a Unitarian minister, but he was, did not stay very long in Brooklyn. He was actually raised in his mother's hometown of Brookline, Massachusetts. Barlow is not a professional soldier by trade. Uh, he actually studied law at Harvard University. He graduated first in his class. And as the war broke out in 1861, he was actually practicing law on the staff of the New York Tribune newspaper. So kind of an interesting background. But he was involved in militia affairs mm -hmm. in the state of New York as you know, a lot of more well-to-do individuals would have been. In April of 1861, he enlists as a private in the 12th New York State Militia. Now, for some of our more battle buffs, 12th New York State Militia, 
We think of the battlefield. We think of the 44th New York's monument on Little Round Top. That also has a connection to the 12th New York State Militia. So the big castle everybody sees in Little Round Top. Barlow is in the monument. If you mm-hmm. go inside there, there's actually a relief of him there. So if you want to see General Barlow on Little Round Top, you can. He doesn't stay a private very long. Going to be commissioned as a first lieutenant in the first month of his service. Uh, the regiment was only a three-month regiment, so it's mustered out relatively quickly. Uh, but by November of 1861, he's a lieutenant colonel in the 61st New York. And by the time of the Peninsula Campaign in the spring of 1862, he's going to be its colonel. Barlow's going to see his first action in the war at the Battle of Seven Pines as part of the Second Corps under the command of then-Brigadier General Oliver Howard. So this is the first time that we see these individuals kind of crossing paths in the war. Of course, at Seven Pines is where Howard is going to be severely wounded and will lose an arm at Seven Pines. Now, as Eric had mentioned, Barlow enlisted in the Union Army about five days after Fort Sumter and had left his bride of one day. Barlow had courted and married Arabella Barlow, who was quite a bit older than he was, if I remember, maybe about 10 years or so older. Yeah, I think about 10 years. Yeah, about 10 years. Mrs. Barlow will come into play more probably in the uh, second part of this installment. But, you know, if you're sort of keeping score right now, doing some comparisons between Barlow and Sickles, again, New York ties, both trained as attorneys, some some ties to the newspapers. Sickles liked younger women. Barlow liked older women. So there's a little bit of a contrast there. But I would also add, too, which I think Eric called out nicely in this opening bio, Barlow, you know, even though he doesn't have the military training, again, like Sickles, no military training, Barlow seems to be accomplishing some success here during the uh, early stages of the war. So if you're Gettysburg centric and you just kind of think of Barlow in context of, you know, the so-called mistake on July 1st, he's not coming into Gettysburg with a bad track record. And also, if we think about Sickles, Sickles certainly benefited from his connection with Joseph Hooker. In many ways, Barlow benefits from his connection to Oliver Howard. Yeah, good point. So I think we see these are individuals that certainly are going to benefit by connections they make early in the war that are going to play a role in what we see here at Gettysburg. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the other thing that might be of interest to people as well, not everyone might realize that Barlow was actually a good friend of Robert Gould Shaw. Shaw being the colonel of the famed 54th Massachusetts from the movie Glory. So again, being New Englanders, Barlow and Shaw had had quite a close relationship. That is evidence in some of the correspondence that goes back and forth of the period. There was talk at one point about possibly giving Barlow command of a black regiment, which he seemed to be supportive of and that he was willing to do. And spoiler alert and jump too far to the end in case we forget it later i will note that mrs barlow number two would in fact be robert gould shaw's sister so there's a little bit of interesting trivia for you for you movie folks if anybody's into the movie glory and who isn't you know among the civil war audience does that mean we're going to do a watch along of glory now sure we'll add it to season eight season eight we'll, we'll do that yeah i mean they mentioned gettysburg in the uh, movie Okay, Eric, I think you left us off at the seven days. What else do you got on Barlow? As we get into the seven days, so we're talking June, July, 1862, Barlow's going to see action at Glendale and Malvern Hill. 
He really distinguishes himself at the Battle of Glendale. His regiment's going to become separated from the rest of his brigade, and he's really going to exercise, for lack of a better term, personal initiative. He's going to advance his men to the sound of the fighting. They're going to encounter a Confederate battle line, and while leading his men in a bayonet charge against that Confederate force, the enemy flees. Barlow himself is going to pick up a Confederate battle flag. This is a guy, by all accounts, leads from the front. Pretty brave, dynamic young officer. At the Battle of Malvern Hill, Barlow and his men are going to successfully defend a portion of that line against repeated Confederate assaults on July 1st, 1862. So one year to the day that we'll be talking about in this episode. Moving forward, he's going to take part in the Battle of Antietam. He's going to be in command of a brigade at this point. Barlow's men are going to be in the center of that battle, of fighting near the infamous Sunken Road or Bloody Lane, if you will, where they're going to capture about 300 prisoners in that fight. It's during the Battle of Antietam that he's going to be severely wounded. Uh, he's wounded by an artillery shell in the face and more seriously, grape shot to the groin. Ooh. So this is hard times for Francis Channing Barlow here. All I can add to that is the American dream Dusty Rhodes once said, hard times. Hard times, baby, hard times. That was pretty good. Writing his official report after the Battle of Antietam, then Brigadier General John Caldwell, a name that we are going to hear later at the Battle of Gettysburg in regards to Barlow, is going to write, Whatever praise is due to the most distinguished bravery, the utmost coolness and quickness of perception, the greatest promptitude and skill in handling troops under fire is justly due to him. It is but simple justice to say that he has proven himself fully equal to every emergency, and I have no doubt that he would discharge the duties of a much higher command with honor to himself and benefit to the country. Two days after the Battle of Antietam, Barlow will be promoted to a Brigadier General of Volunteers. Now, at this point, some of our listeners might be a little surprised by the depiction that we have given of Barlow. Usually, we don't think about what these commanders do before Gettysburg. We just always kind of get them here, and then here they are in the battle. But also, I think what works against Barlow is his appearance itself. and doesn't really cast the figure of this battle-hardened, grizzled warrior that he really is by 1863. Jim, do you have a little bit more about Barlow's appearance? Yeah, I do. He was considered to be slight of build, pale color, a thin voice, and, you know, significant for the Civil War crowd, no facial hair. Meade's staffer Theodore Lyman wrote that Barlow looked like, quote, a highly independent mounted newsboy. You know, Eric, I'm not even sure what that means, but it sounds like a slam, you know? Well, he did work for the New York Tribune. There you so go. There's right, that. I mean, right. he was a little bit more than a newsboy. Right, he right. was you know, an attorney for them. So before somebody goes on Facebook and says, Jim, this is what a newsboy is. No, no, I get it. I get it. So the idea obviously being he doesn't really look like a general. Now we'll probably talk about Barlow, the strict disciplinarian, but at least it's been recorded by biographers that in reality, he seems to have not had little sense of military decorum. He supposedly preferred a checked flannel shirt and wore his uniform coat over that sort of unbuttoned. And for our listeners, if you really want to get a sense of what Barlow looked like in the field, there's the famous photo taken in 1864 where he's with Hancock right. as part of the Second Corps once again. You see him leaning against the tree. You really get a sense of what Barlow looked like in the field. I think one of the cooler photos of the American Civil War. Yeah, again, for trivia, you've got Hancock. You've got Barlow, you've got Gibbon, and you've got David Burney, all Gettysburg generals in that photo. Yeah, I love that photo. But by all accounts, you know, Barlow, by 
really 1863 as we move into that year. He has a reputation as an aggressive fighter and I think also a guy that's got a lot of confidence. So I think certainly this is a guy on the rise as we will see. So for a lot of students of the American Civil War, we don't really begin to notice Barlow in a prominent role until 1863. Now, despite his excellent record in 1862 and being a very aggressive, dynamic officer, physically, he's probably not in the best shape. Uh, He's going to suffer for months from the wound that he received in Antietam. One account noticed that he was becoming emaciated and suffering from what doctors called, and I quote, an influence of malaria. Mm. So this is a guy that's not in the best shape moving into 1863. But despite the physical ailments, professionally, early 1863 is going to be a pretty good period for Francis Barlow. Yeah, if you define good period for Barlow as being involved in two massively bloody battles, 1863 is a great year for the guy. Now, we did get a question from super fan Keith in the Hanover area who wanted to know, you know, what kind of influence Chancellorsville might have had on Barlow, which I thought was an awesome question because in today's edition of the Dan Sickles Report, we always talk about what kind of influence Chancellorsville had on Sickles, but it's, it's a great idea to kind of say, hey, how did that extend to Barlow? At Chancellorsville, as Sickles was drawing more support to launch an attack on Jackson's flank column in and around Catherine Furnace, one of the units that was sent to his support at some point was Barlow's Brigade. So the net result of all of that is Barlow himself was not really involved in the 11th Corps debacle that happened later at Chancellorsville when the 11th Corps was outflanked by Jackson and essentially put to flight. So Barlow was not physically part of that, but we can and we will later in this episode or in part two kind of argue about what the psychological impact of that might have been on young General Barlow. We've mentioned this before and I think in another episode where you know, one of the kind of trendy quotes to say on Civil War message boards and social media is to say, to understand the Battle of Gettysburg, you have to understand Chancellorsville. And yes and no, but I think certainly the stigma and the ghosts of Chancellorsville are very much alive in the minds of many Union officers. So I think it's mm-hmm. certain, something going through their mind. I think when they get into certain positions, they start thinking, especially if you're at the end of the line, Uh, This could be a little challenging for Mm -hmm. us. So I think to that extent, doesn't really have the stain of Chancellorsville as maybe many in the 11th Corps would have had, in my opinion, somewhat unfairly. But I think he certainly is going to be influenced by what happened as many officers in the Army of the Potomac were after that battle. Yeah, and one of the things we're hoping to do in Season 2 is a very special 11th Corps episode with our good friend and colleague, Stu Dempsey. So this might be the kind of thing, Eric, maybe we make a note here. We'll sort of pick this up and kind of pick Stu's brains on it when we get him on the show. So Eric, having said that, what's the fallout from Chancellorsville? For Barlow, it's a promotion. In the wake of Chancellorsville, Oliver Howard, who's in command of the 11th Corps, is going to promote Francis Barlow to command the 1st Division of the 11th Corps. What Howard is looking for is for Barlow to restore the fighting quality of its defeated brigades. Barlow's coming in to clean up the mess, whip these guys into shape, and turn them into an effective fighting force. Now, on paper, that sounds great, but as we're going to see, it doesn't really work out as well because we're going to see really two contrasting styles developing here at this point. 
So, okay, Barlow is brought in to whip the 11th corner into shape. Eric, I'm not really getting a warm and fuzzy picture here. I'm not thinking Barlow's an easygoing kind of guy that the enlisted men are going to love. What's going on? Tell us more. Well, on paper, you would think he would be. He's not a West Pointer. He's not a professional soldier. He just looks like kind of a wimp. I mean, yeah, let's call he, it. he kind of dresses haphazardly. So you would think that he would really be popular with the men in this respect. We still haven't gotten to writing letters to mommy. You know, we haven't even gotten to that yet. No, no. And I'm sure the men would have loved to hear that as well. But what we see with Barlow is really a reputation for discipline. Now, as a general, he did not carry the army-issued officer sword. He actually wore a heavy enlisted men's cavalry saber, which some accounts said that he used to basically whack the backs of stragglers in line. So here's a guy that's really winning hearts and minds of his new command. Barlow's disdain for stragglers was almost a personal obsession. We have one account that notes that as his columns were on the march, they would be followed by a company in skirmish line with fixed bayonets to move them along. So if you're in Barlow's division, you don't straggle. Imagine now you're a guy in the ranks. You're marching. You may be gone 10, 15 miles that day. You're getting worn out. And here's a guy that's ordering guys of bayonets to prod you along or may whack you with the back of a heavy cavalry saber. Not really becoming a popular guy among these individuals. One of the first things that really begins to set the tone that really angers the men of of his division is that Barlow is going to arrest the very popular Colonel Leopold von Gilsa. Really for a minor infraction, we're not talking a major issue here, one individual would actually describe Barlow as a petty tyrant. So we had a number of listener questions that sort of centered around Barlow's view of his men and their view of him, and we really have an insight into Barlow's thoughts from his own letters. We actually have a wonderful collection of his letters there. Jim, I think you have a letter that kind of, I think, sheds some light onto the way that Barlow viewed his men in the 11th Corps. Yeah, we do, Eric. So I'm going to read an excerpt from a letter that Barlow wrote on June 2nd, 1863. So we are after Chancellorsville, but we are before Gettysburg. And there's a couple interesting things here that we've touched on. Quote, I presume you have heard something of my fortune since I left Massachusetts. First, I commanded a brigade in this corps and was fortunate enough not to be among the runaways on May 2nd. So there you kind of have Barlow kind of distancing himself from the 11th Corps at Chancellorsville. But he goes on, quote, Now I have command of this division. Vision, lately commanded by General Devins. It was the first to break on May 2nd and is in a most disgusting condition as to discipline and morale. But if hard knocks and a tight rein will make them fight, they will have to do it. One of the brigades is wholly German and is commanded by Colonel von Gilsa. Or rather, it is now commanded by a major, as Colonel Gilsa is away, and I have the next colonel in rank under arrest. I expect to have to arrest them all the way down until I find some private soldier who will make them do things properly. The other brigade has three Ohio and one Connecticut regiment. It is all-American." Over this last brigade, I have named General Ames, the last appointed of the Brigadier Generals, a most admirable officer who graduated at West Point in 1861 and who has a very high reputation, end quote. So, Eric, what do you think of that? 
Yeah, I think we're already starting to see sort of his anti-German sentiment. And I think what's interesting, if you look at the letters, you know, sometimes you will see officers having issues with soldiers, for lack of a better term, of various ethnic backgrounds, whether they be Irish, German, you name it. He really doesn't really focus on any of the Irish troops that much. It's sort of his disdain seems to be really focused on the Germans. For whatever reason, Barlow just has it out for these guys. Yeah, and I think if you do an analysis of the guy, again, this is going to be kind of hard, you know, by 2020 standards. As we said earlier, he seemed to be okay to the concept of serving with blacks. But like a lot of New Englanders, he doesn't like the Germans. And that, unfortunately, folks, is not uncommon. Our Civil War heroes were not as quote-unquote enlightened or as politically correct as we are in this modern era. So, you know, you got to kind of accept Barlow is a man of his time times and even with barlow when he even consider joining an african-american unit he really says some very unsavory words mm. about them so he's not really a guy that has a warm spot in his heart he's really looking at hey it's a promotion for me and i think we see an individual that he'll take on a job with maybe people in his mind are less desirable mm. if it means personal advancement for him. Yeah, while I agree with that, I would personally characterize his thoughts on African-Americans as really being more condescending than anything. And again, you know, folks, whether we like it or not, that was, frankly, how our men at that time viewed African-Americans. I do have one more excerpt from June 7th that I just want to quote. It's a short one, but I laugh every time I read this. This time he's right to his mother, quote, I am busily occupied with these miserable creatures, and I get very little time to do anything. I am heartily tired of this lying in camp, and I wish for a fight or to go home. For a day or two, I have had a bad headache and have been out of order in my bowels, end quote. Grape shot to the groin will do that to you. We'll do that to you. And if you're having issues with your bowels, who else to tell but your mommy? Exactly. Okay, Eric, so before we actually move into the Gettysburg campaign itself, do we have any remaining listener questions that might touch on bigger picture issues within the 11th Corps? Yeah, one of our listeners, Michael, on Facebook wrote, What role, if any, did societal views of German immigrants shape the perception of this fight after the battle? Now, this is kind of after the fact, but I think it does move into the way that the 11th Corps was viewed going into the Gettysburg campaign. This is something that I think I would really like to delve in more with Stuart Dempsey, mm-hmm. our colleague, because I mean, yeah. he is the 11th Corps guy. So certainly this is a very quick answer to a very complex question. But when we look at the background of the 11th Corps, they are not part of what we would consider the original Army of the Potomac. They are not on the peninsula. They're not in the Seven Days. We first really see them coming to the forefront in the Second Manassas Campaign, where they don't really perform that great. They don't really put in a tremendous performance at Chancellorsville by many in the ranks would see it. And then they don't do the same at Gettysburg, as we'll talk about a little bit later. But there's also some social issues at play. When we look at the Army of the Potomac, if we look at the leadership, it's predominantly Democratic-leaning. When we look at the 11th Corps, a lot of their original leadership are very strong Republicans. So we have a political difference here. Not to mention many of the Germans in the ranks, they're speaking a different language or they're speaking very broken English. They're not assimilating with everyone else, so to speak. They're different. And also there's some religious differences here. 
Many in the 11th Corps of German backgrounds, um, there was a strong number of Catholics in the 19th century. There's a strong anti-Catholic feeling in the United States. So there's a lot against these men to where they don't really fit in with the rest of the Army of the Potomac as, say, units in the 1st Corps, the 2nd Corps, or the 5th Corps might. They're kind of outcasts, and I think that's part of the what's always interested me about them is they're kind of this group that nobody really wants in the Army of the Potomac. There are many ways to the leadership a burden. But certainly we wanted to answer your question kind of big picture. This is something we'll delve into later this season. So you know, certainly be on the lookout. But, you know, it is an interesting topic that I think will rear its head here at the Battle of Gettysburg. Agree. Yeah, you know, the only other thing I was going to add to that, I wanted to give a shout out to our friend and colleague, Ralph Siegel. Saw him do one of those PCN walks one time with the 11th Corps, and he started out basically by giving all the orders in German, which I thought was brilliant, because basically he's standing there shouting in German, and obviously the American audience didn't understand a bloody word he was saying. And the obvious inference there that Ralph was trying to make was, okay, now imagine what it would have been like for German troops in the chaos of a battlefield to try to understand what their uh, American officers were shouting at them. So certainly when you talk about quote-unquote poor performance of the 11th Corps because of this German factor, you could obviously question to the effect, uh, you know, how many of them even knew what orders they were being told. And again, just obviously added to the confusion. So kudos to our friend and colleague Ralph Siegel. I thought when he did that, that was uh, brilliant. So we have one more kind of big picture 11th core question, and it's from Facebook from our from another listener named Michael. This is a different Michael. We have a lot of Michaels that listen to the show, but it's a very simple question, maybe the shortest question we've ever received in the history of the show. It is pronounced Shezanowski. That's how I pronounce it, but there is some question as to how we would pronounce it. Jim, how do you pronounce his name? Well, first of all, on Battlefield Tours, I just avoid Howard Avenue so I don't have to say this guy's name. Yeah, I get it. Um, and again, this will be better fodder for when Stu Dempsey comes on the show. We can banter back and forth about this. I've heard Shavanowski. I've heard Shavnowski. I've heard all different iterations of it. I will tell you, in America, Chicago, for example, where polls are you know still predominant, you know we do in America call it Krisnowski. That's how we say it in America. I might have bastardized that a little bit, but you guys get the idea. I'm calling it right now for the remainder of this episode and for the remainder of my Battle of Gettysburg podcast career, I'm calling him Kriz. You guys can call him Chev. I don't care what you call him. I'm calling him Kriz. K-R-I-Z-Z is how I'm saying this guy's name forevermore. Hashtag 2020, year of the Kriz. Year of the Kriz. Now, for me, growing up in North Carolina, when I see that name, I immediately just think of Duke's Hall of Fame basketball coach, Mike Krzyzewski. So, you know, what do I know? Okay, folks. So at this point, let's bring Barlow his division, and the entire 11th Corps into Gettysburg. Now it's July 1st, 1863. The situation, critical. Fighting has been occurring west of Gettysburg all morning, primarily between elements of the Union Army 1st Corps and initially AP Hill's 3rd Corps as they are approaching Gettysburg from the west. Oliver Howard, again, 11th Corps commander, comes into Gettysburg during the morning of July 1st while fighting is raging west of town. And it is while Howard is in town surveying the situation that he learns that 1st Corps commander John Reynolds has been killed. 
world. Folks, that's important in our story today because that's going to set off a series of sort of chain reaction moves within the 11th Corps command structure. Howard, realizing Reynolds is dead, is now the senior officer on the field, and Howard, taking command of the field, will basically turn command of the 11th Corps over to Major General Carl Schurz. Now, with General Schurz in command of the 11th Corps, at about midday, about 12 o'clock noon or so, there's a little bit of a lull in the fighting on the battlefield. The 1st Corps, the Union Army 1st Corps, is primarily along McPherson's Ridge and Oak Ridge, kind of in a north-south deployment, basically fronting to the west. Hill's troops are coming in from the west, but at midday, Robert Rhodes' division of Richard Ewell's 2nd Corps now comes in and occupies Oak Hill on the north. The right flank of the 1st Corps is potentially in danger. That's going to start to bring the 11th Corps as they're coming up from south of Gettysburg. Barlow's division specifically arrives at Gettysburg via the Emmitsburg Road. Barlow and Howard will take a ride up Washington Street and kind of start to deploy the 11th Corps in an area that we would call the Plain of Gettysburg, low flat ground north of Gettysburg College. But Eric, before we start deploying the 11th Corps infantry, these aren't the only Union guys on the field at this point, are they? No, they're not. And one thing that kind of surprised us when we put out for listener questions for this episode was the number of questions that we had that related to the Union Cavalry Brigade of Thomas Devon of John Buford's division. We were sort of amazed by this. We had a lot of questions, almost as many as Barlow himself, yeah. about Devon, which I thought was kind of cool, but kind of unexpected. At the same yeah, time. definitely unexpected. But you know, I don't know why we're surprised, Eric. We know people love John Buford. And by asking us about Devin, you really want to know about Buford. You know, for season two, do we need to implement the John Buford report to kind of complement the Dan Sickles report? It feels like people want to hear about Buford every time you go near the field. You mean the J.N.O. Buford report? Yeah, maybe the Sam Elliott hour. I don't, you know, just something to, to sort of satisfy the listeners and their insatiable appetite for all things J.N.O. Buford. And we joke, but Devin's presence on this part of the field is going to have some impact on what's going to happen later in the day with Barlow. So even though there are a lot of questions, I think they are warranted. And something that when we do talk about Barlow's knoll as an action in the battle doesn't maybe always get as delved into as much as maybe as it, as it should. We usually kind of have Devin out there. He leaves and here come the Confederates. Barlow moves out and mm-hmm. we get the whole dynamic there. So I think we're going to kind of give a little bit of, of a dive into Devin in that area, because as I said, it will impact what happens later in the day. So for the purposes of our episode, Jim, What's Devon's Brigade doing out north of town on July 1st? And more specifically, as we look a little later, what's the 9th New York doing out there? Well, let me start with the uh, big picture and talk about Devon. So Devon's basically vedettes are helping to provide coverage from basically the Mummersburg Road, across the Carlisle Road, the old Harrisburg Road, and the York Road. Now, remember what I said earlier, the 
infantry right flank of the first corps at this point essentially ends on oak ridge so there's really no union coverage north and east of gettysburg that's where devon comes in his skirmishers his vedettes his pickets are basically out patrolling these roads and essentially providing an advance early warning system of any advancing confederates which is good because as howard places in his report at about 12 30 p.m general buford see folks there's your buford reference general buford sent me word that the enemy was massing between the york and harrisburg roads to the north of gettysburg some three or four miles from the town so at this point buford's cavalry is getting the job done letting howard and the union high command know that you got trouble confederates are coming in from multiple directions now, Eric, that's what Devin is doing. You had mentioned the 9th New York. What are they up to? Simply put, the 9th New York Cavalry's job on July 1st is to cover the Harrisburg Road, monitor what's going on, report back. The 9th is an interesting unit. If you ask most students of the Battle of Gettysburg, who fires the first shot? Well, it's an easy answer. Lieutenant Marcellus Jones of the 8th Illinois Cavalry. Everybody knows that. There's the first shot marker. But there are other individuals that are going to lay claim to firing the first shot at the Battle of Gettysburg. Folks, the veterans were fascinated by firsts. As are we. As are we. One of the individuals who gets credit for firing the first shot of the Battle of Gettysburg was Alpheus Hodges, who was from Monroe County, New York, really the area around Rochester. But it was said that he was one of the individuals that fired the first shot. In fact, his obituary dies at the age of 80 is going to note that he fires the first shot of the Battle of Gettysburg. Also in the 9th New York, we have very well one of the first Union deaths on July 1st. And that is actually Cyrus James of the 9th. So we have a couple firsts here. When we do a John Buford episode, we'll delve a little more into that. But as I was researching the ninth for this episode, I found an interesting tidbit in Alpheus Hodges' obituary. This is, in my opinion, way cooler than maybe firing the first shot of the Battle of Gettysburg. Because it was said that Corporal Hodges performed distinguished services as an orderly on General Daniel Sickles' staff Uh. on the second day of the Battle of Gettysburg. He remained on detail at 3rd Army Corps headquarters on the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th of July, then returned to his regiment and continued with it until August 1st, when he was captured at the Cavalry Battle of Brandy Station. This is the other Brandy Station, folks. Very well done, and God bless Hodges for his service on the staff of Dan Sickles. Folks, Sickles is everywhere. You can't escape him in our story. We will find a way to connect him to everything. Who would have thought that a conversation about the 9th New York and Devon's Brigade would lead to a Sickles report? So, you know, if you're a new listener, you know, occasionally on our Civil War talks, as Eric and I give tours, we give talks across the country. Sometimes we find people who don't find Sickles as interesting as we do. All we can say is, you know, come on along for the ride. We're not trying to make you a fan of Sickles. We're not trying to make you like the guy. We are professional historians. That's not what we do. But if you don't find him interesting and we can't make him interesting, eh, you might be on the wrong podcast. Not that we want you to go anywhere. I'm just saying. And we're going to let you know, kind of one of our running 
for lack of a better term, kind of gags on the show is we're going to talk a lot about Dan Sickles and we're also going to talk a lot about 1980s Southern pro wrestling. Yeah. So two very commonly associated things. Yeah. Okay, Eric, I think it's time we got the 11th Corps on the field. So as we said earlier, Schertz is now commanding the Corps. He probably arrives in Gettysburg in or about 12 o'clock noon. Howard directed Schertz to basically place two of the three 11th Corps divisions north of town, extending and supporting the right flank of the 1st Corps. So as we said, Doubleday's 1st Corps is kind of on a north-south line along McPherson's Ridge and Oak Ridge. Rhodes' Confederate division has taken Oak Hill. He's taken Oak Hill prior to the 11th Corps arrival, and that's important because there's some indication the 11th Corps might have intended to take that commanding piece of high ground at Oak Hill, but they can't. Rhodes has gotten there first. And if you want to hear more about that, I'd recommend listening to episode three of season one that we did on what if Jackson was at Gettysburg. good. We go into a lot of detail about the arrival of Yule and his forces on the field. So if you want to get a refresher on that, I'd direct you to that episode. Great point. A a beloved episode. One of of our best. So, okay. So Confederates have beaten the 11th Corps to Oak Hill. So basically at this point... All the 11th Corps can do is kind of figure out how they are going to deploy in the low ground, again, north of Gettysburg College, to basically protect the 1st Corps' right flank and at least cover two of the roads, the Carlisle Road and the Harrisburg Road. So Schertz conferred briefly with Howard and then again with Barlow when he arrived. And Barlow and the division probably get into Gettysburg itself, eh, you know, give or take 1 o'clock p.m. As I said before, they're going to move north through town via Washington Street. You know, the women of the town are singing patriotic songs and maybe offering water and flags and flowers to the guys as they ride up Washington Street. And they also, during that ride, probably take some artillery fire from Carter's battalion on Oak Hill. Passing the college, Barlow's division is then going to move via the Mummersburg Road beyond the assembled columns of Brigadier General Chris's brigade. Hashtag Chris 2020. And essentially start to deploy in these open fields. Now again, things start to get a little bit muddy from there, but that kind of sets the stage to bring the 11th Corps and specifically Barlow onto the field. And we did have a listener question who asked, given the reputation the 11th Corps had in the Army of the Potomac, why were they placed in this very vulnerable position? And frankly, it's because they're there. Their infantry on the field. In a perfect world, if that was maybe the 12th Corps and the 11th Corps arriving at the same time, I think you probably would have seen the 12th Corps moving out into that area. The 11th Corps stays behind. But hey, on July 1st, Howard's got troops at hand. There's Confederates massing to the north. He needs an infantry presence there. And it's the 11th Corps that draws that job. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, Let me just read a quick excerpt from Schertz's report. The ORs. You know, if you listen to the book episode, we're making the ORs cool again for a younger generation. Schertz, I think, says something interesting in his report, quote, either the enemy was before us in small force, and then we had to push him with all possible vigor, or he had the principal part of his army there, and then we had to establish ourselves in a position which would enable us to maintain ourselves until the arrival of reinforcements. Either of these cases being possible, provision was to be made for both. So at that point, again, Howard 
orders shirts to basically take the 11th Corps 3rd and 1st Division through the town, quote, and endeavor to gain possession of the eastern prolongation of the ridge then partly held by the 1st Corps, end quote. Now remember, folks, the 11th Corps is a small corps, and they've only got two of the three divisions here in action. Howard said in his report, quote, I therefore ordered General Schertz to halt his command to prevent his right flank being turned, but to push forward a thick line of skirmishers to seize the point first indicated as a relief and support to the 1st Corps. So now we're talking about pushing forward a thick line of skirmishers to connect with the uh, right flank of the 11th Corps. Eric, I got to tell you, they're coming onto the battlefield, two of the three divisions, they're small command, the enemy's approaching, we're in low ground, you know, we don't really have a good position to connect with the right of the first corps. I don't know about you, but I'm not getting a good feeling about how this is going to end. Spoiler alert, it's not going to end well for the 11th Corps on July 1st. Okay, folks, now we're back to General Schertz's OR. So since Schertz has been elevated from command of the 3rd Division to basically command of the Corps, Schimmelfennig now is moved from brigade command to command of the division. So as we said before, there's sort of a domino effect here of guys starting to move around, all because of Reynolds's death. Back to Schertz's report. Schertz says the 3rd Division, which will now be basically Schimmelfennig, arrived at the double quick, and he ordered Schimmelfennig to advance briskly through the town and to deploy on the right of the First Corps in two lines. This order was executed with promptness and spirit. So it's basically Schimmelfennig's third division on the right of the First Corps. Shortly afterwards, Barlow's division arrived, advanced through the town, and was ordered by me to form on the right of the 3rd Division. And Barlow's 1st Brigade was to connect with the 3rd Division west of the road leading to Mummersburg. Shortly afterward, Barlow's division arrived by the Emmitsburg Road, advanced through the town, and was ordered by me to form on the right of the 3rd Division. Okay, folks, are you following along? So now you're going to have Barlow's orders. Barlow's orders are to form on the right of the 3rd Division. Barlow's 1st Brigade under Leopold von Gilsa is supposed to connect with the 3rd Division, and then Barlow's 2nd Brigade under Adelbert Ames is to be held in echelon behind the right of von Gilsa's Brigade. Now, I know I threw a lot of names at you and a lot of brigades there and that sort of thing, but the point I'm trying to get, folks... Barlow arrives and his orders are to stay connected with the right of the 3rd Division. There's nothing about holding a specific piece of ground connect with the right of the 3rd Division. Those, as best as we can ascertain, are Barlow's orders. So just to give everyone listening a little bit of an idea of where we're going with this, at this point, we're over an hour into the episode. It's going to be very similar to what we did with the Peach Orchard, where we really kind of use Sickle's movement forward as kind of the point to end it for the episode. So that's kind of what we're going to do here. We're going to set the stage for Barlow's movement, and we're going to cover the fighting, some of the controversies after, and some of the memory aspects of that fight in our next episode, which will be episode two on Barlow's Null. So don't worry, it's coming, but we're going to get uh, Barlow up to his the Null that bears his name, and then we will call it a day from there. So just kind of give an idea of where we're at. As the 11th Corps is moving into the fields north of Gettysburg, we have Jubal Early's division coming down the Harrisburg Road. Now, we're going to cover Early's division a little more in detail in our next episode, but we do have a great account 
from John Warwick Daniel, who was a member of Jubal Early's staff. And I have a copy of a letter he wrote on November 20th, 1863. So only a few months after the battle here. One day after Lincoln gives the Gettysburg Address, interestingly enough. Hmm. But he talks about what was going on that morning with Early's division. He's going to write, At about 8 o'clock that morning, our division was put into motion, and arriving after a march of about three miles at Heidlersburg, took the left-hand road leading to Gettysburg. General Rhodes, who preceded us with his division, passed through Heidlersburg and continued on the road towards Gettysburg. Knowledge of the enemy's whereabouts was as yet confined to official circles, but soon the booming of cannon, who keep no confidence, made known to all that they were not far ahead. He's going to later continue that Lieutenant Colonel White of the 35th Battalion of Virginia Cavalry preceded the division to reconnoiter, but met with no force except small bodies of cavalry who galloped off as soon as our men approached them. So we met with no impediment and advanced with quick step to the field of battle. So if we look at what the 9th New York is doing out here, according to Daniel on early staff, it's not a really inspired performance out there. But maybe we can see a little bit about why that's happening because of what's going to be happening subsequently with the arrival of the 11th Corps on the field and what Devin is going to do in response to that. And this brings us to two listener questions we had from superfans Jeff and Mike about what happened to Devin's Cavalry Brigade and also what did the high command of the 11th Corps know? When did they know it? And was there a disconnect between Shirts and Barlow? We're going to kind of unpack that right now. And Jim, I think you have some answers to those questions. Well, I hope so. You know, you mentioned superfans Jeff and Mike. I would also be remiss if we did not call out superfan Scott from the Boston area, as I know he has battled this topic many times over the years at the old Military History Online or MHO message board. Yeah, a lot of this starts to come to us, first of all, from Oliver Howard's report. Howard says that at about 2.45 p.m., the enemy showed himself in force in front of the 11th Corps. Now, in Howard's report, he's starting to pull Jones's Confederate battalion into position on what he calls a prominent slope between the Mummersburg and the Harrisburg roads. We haven't really gone into that yet. As Eric said, we're going to do the Confederate stuff a little bit more in episode two. But from this point, he opened fire upon the 11th Corps, more or less enfilading Robinson's division. The batteries attached to the 11th Corps opened fire in return. So Howard thinks he's going to help out. Now, remember, folks, Howard is not on the front lines. He's back in town by the cemetery. So Howard basically has a uh, battery near him, a battery under Weedrich's battery near him. And Howard thinks he's going to provide some support and help out. So Howard says in his report, quote, I directed him to fire, provided he could reach the enemy. He did so, but his shells, for the most part, fell short. Soon after, complaint came that they reached no farther than our own cavalry. However, I never heard anyone say that any of our men were killed or wounded by this fire, end quote. So basically, folks, yes, Oliver Howard starts shelling Devin's cavalry. So Devin picks up in his report, quote, While in that position, a heavy fire of shells was opened on us from one of our own batteries on Cemetery Hill, immediately in my rear. The fire becoming 
becoming very hot and persistent and many of the shells bursting among us. I was led to suppose for a moment that the enemy had succeeded in gaining that position and I immediately removed my command into the town, the column being shelled the whole distance, end quote. Now, folks, I don't mean to laugh here, especially if you're a Devon or a Buford fan, but I mean, for God's sakes, the guy is getting shelled by Howard on, on Cemetery Hill. Howard, as usual in his report, offers all kinds of explanations that in Howardese basically says, hey, it was wasn't my fault. But it's certainly from my perspective, and I know this has been a heated and sometimes interesting debate, and it ties back to some of the questions over whether Devin was quote unquote justified in retiring. You know, not only is Devin taking fire, but he says in his report that the fire is so great that, you know, he's got the impression that maybe the enemy is occupying the hill in his rear. So from that point of view, I think Devin could kind of be given a bogey here for having to pull back. That's my take. I know there are people out there who might disagree, but that is my take. Yeah, and this actually goes back to a question that superfan Dennis had about when did this shelling occur, which I think we kind of just set up for everyone here. But he then asked, what was the end result of the 11th Corps losing their cavalry screen? Which I think when I look at this, the biggest influence it's going to have is by withdrawing back to the town, Devon is moving away from the enemy approaching. So you're not having as many eyes out there as maybe you would. Now, this is one of those things, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? But we are seeing the impact that it's going to have is that unbeknownst, it's sort of clearing off the Harrisburg Road for Early's men to keep advancing down. Yeah, and I think, again, one of the questions likewise kind of tied to the point of, well, did Devin give any meaningful intelligence to the high command of the 11th Corps. As we said earlier, Howard has been getting reports that the enemy is approaching. Howard certainly passes that down to Schertz. There's no direct note that I'm aware of that I can think of off the top of my head that says Barlow received this intelligence. But Schertz is very active on the field. He's probably on the roof of the Hagee farm, which is not far from where Barlow is. And Barlow basically says that, you know, he's ordered out there to engage the enemy enemies. So I do believe that Barlow also knows the enemy is coming and hell, if he hasn't started taking artillery fire, he's going to soon. So I think they know what's coming. I think to me, the impact of Devin's withdrawal is, as Eric said, not only do you lose eyes on the enemy, but now when early will start that basically that rush down the old Harrisburg road, you know, you're not going to have any of Buford's guys to delay them. Buford's guys in the morning of July 1st did a great job West of the town delaying the confederate advance and they're not going to do that here and i think ultimately we'll see one of the things that causes barlow's knoll to fall is the rapid advance of of early's division so i personally think from that point of view devon's withdrawal is still very significant i think there's also some conflicted feelings among the union high command at this point of which road are the confederates coming down yeah you know are they coming down carlisle are they coming down harrisburg what's going on so we often as we view these battles we have a lot more information at our disposal than the commanders in the field did and as i look at this i think there's a lot of confusion among troops in that northern sector of the line, the Army of the Potomac, as to exactly where the Confederates are coming down, because it makes a big difference if the bulk of the force is coming down the Carlisle Road or the Harrisburg Road. They're not separated that far distance-wise, but in terms of positioning of your troops, it makes a big difference. 
Yeah, and you know, Eric, again, folks, we're going to get into Confederate movements in a little more detail in part two, but we would be remiss if we didn't point out at this point that also coming down the Carlisle Road from the north would be Doles' Brigade. And not only do you have Doles' Infantry Brigade, but in front of him, you have obviously his sharpshooters and his skirmishers. So there's um, a, a general belief that the 11th Corps guys, again, kind of in this low ground north of the Gettysburg College, are already taking taking fire from skirmishers and the sharpshooters in Dole's brigade, as well as again, being aware that Dole's is approaching. If you're a commander on the field in that part of the line, if you see a force of the enemy in your front, your job is to face the enemy. Of course, by doing that, you're facing away from another threat, but how much do you really know of that threat barreling down at that time towards you? And that's something that we'll talk about mm-hmm. in the next episode a little bit, but we want to show you that there's a lot of moving parts at this, that it's not, you make your decision and then run with it. You're really calling it on the fly as you're seeing it at this point, reacting to what's in your front and reacting to what you perceive as the threat there. Yeah, you know, and I would add, it just occurred to me, if, if anybody wants to kind of follow along, I know it's a very visual society we live in. While Eric and I are talking about this, get your copy of Phil Leano's Gettysburg Campaign Atlas. If you don't own this thing, you need to own it. But get your copy of it. I've got the first edition. The numbering might be different in the second edition. But in the first edition, turn to page 111, 112, 113. Turn to the pages in that neighborhood. Start looking at the maps, and you'll get an idea of the uh, the troop deployments that, that we're talking about. So, Eric, at this point, should we kind of start to bring part one to a close and maybe start to move Barlow forward? Yeah, I think the last sort of bit of unfinished business really comes from Superfan Scott, whose question says, do Devin and the 9th New York deserve criticism for not effectively covering the Harrisburg Road? I think we've kind of talked about that as we've gone through. You know, I don't think you can say they did the greatest job possible. That's pretty clear. But I don't think they're also negligent either. I think there was a lot of things going on that caused them to be in the position where they are. So certainly when you compare them to what Gamble did, they probably don't look as good. Mm -hmm. But I don't think you can necessarily say it was a negligent movement or any of that kind. I I feel like I covered that. But before somebody goes on Facebook and says, Jim, you criticized Buford. How dare you? I'll go back to what I said before. The guy is taking artillery fire from Oliver Howard. I'm giving Devin a bogey for for pulling out. Yeah, if your guys are getting shells dropped on them, common sense says you should probably get them away from that. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's just that's my personal opinion. So now that we have the situation, we still have Barlow in, quote unquote, the original position. So before we get into the movement, we do have a listener question, and it's from Superfan Bob. He said, please discuss where the 11th Corps might have been better placed, if any. Was there perhaps an advantage to having the line run through the Almshouse property or even along the Mummusburg Road? I think what we're looking at right now is certainly that would have given you a more compact line, but I don't necessarily know if it gives you more of an advantage necessarily where you're at. And as we're going to talk about in the movement forward and what Barlow's seen, especially that kind of comes into play. But really the, as we said, Barlow's orders are to stay connected, right? Those are the orders he's working with. Of course, we're going to see things change very soon after that. 
Yeah, I think so. So stay connected with the 3rd Division of the 11th Corps and keep your 2nd Brigade in echelon. Now, we haven't done Barlow's Order of Battle yet, so we should probably bring that in just so people understand. As we start talking about Barlow's division at the brigade level, remember, Barlow has, I believe, the smallest division in the Army of the Potomac. 2,400 or so effective guys. Smallest division folks now in this critical position leopold von gilsa's brigade is the first brigade they've give or take got about 1100 effectives and then adelbert ames's second brigade at about 1300 effective men so von gilsa is connected supposed to be connected to the third division ames is in echelon so yeah eric to the point about that would they have been in a better position if they had not moved forward yeah, I think they probably would have been only because moving forward overextends them. But to, I think, the point that you made, they're really not on good ground. I mean, I've heard some people say, oh, they really could have made a strong position out of this. Like, I, I don't know where you get that. And I think ultimately the problem with the 11th Corps here is in general, these two divisions are just too small. They've got too much ground to cover and you've got the enemy coming at you from multiple directions. And I think also the question of what is better depends on where you're perceiving the threat coming from. If you perceive the threat is coming down the Harrisburg Road, staying in that quote-unquote original position makes more sense. Mm. But if you feel the enemy is coming down the Carlisle Road, I would actually argue moving out to the Knoll gives you a little bit better position to deal with that attack. Once again, it's all how you're perceiving yeah. what's happening on the battlefield. And I often make that point when I do tours on Barlow's Knoll, as we're standing out there, I said, look towards the Carlisle Road. If you're up here, this makes a lot of sense, but notice where your flank would be, essentially facing the Harrisburg Road. But then if you turn and face the Harrisburg Road, what is your flank now facing? It's facing George Dole's Georgians out to your north. So it's really a lose-lose proposition. Yeah, there is not is a true. good position right. in that field. And I think it comes back again to the perception that these commanders are having at the time to what's in their front. Yeah, and you're right. And I think that I think there's no doubt that Doles is the immediate threat. Doles is coming in from the north. That's the first threat. And I do agree that I think initially that's where the majority of the uh, the attention is paid. So you know, people always say, "Why did Barlow move forward?" And uh, you know, one of the reasons why I think Barlow is not as hotly debated as Sickles. You don't see people going around the battlefield saying Barlow, you know, the way they say sickles, you know, that kind of thing. People don't do that. And I think one of the reasons is, you know, Sickles spends 50 years afterwards, God love him, basically defending his actions out here. And Barlow really doesn't. Barlow doesn't talk a lot about it. You know, what he does say in his letter to my dear mother, dated July 7th, 1863, and this is the often quoted kind of Barlow letter to his mother. All Barlow really says is, quote, on getting near the town, we learned that the First Corps had engaged the enemy's infantry and that General Reynolds was killed. General Howard was in command of both Corps and General Schertz in command of the 11th Corps. On arriving in the town, General Schertz ordered me to go through the town, form on the right of the third division and engage the enemy i went through and formed as directed a battery of the fourth u.s artillery being sent to me and that's kind of what barlow says about his orders but Schertz says basically that after taking the necessary observations on his left 
Schertz returned to the Mummersburg Road, quote, where I discovered that General Barlow had moved forward his whole line, thus losing on his left the connection with the 3rd Division. Moreover, Barlow's 2nd Brigade had been taken out of its position in echelon behind the right of the 1st Brigade. Schertz immediately gave orders to reestablish the connection, but ultimately it's going to be too late. So now we are at Francis Channing Barlow's big moment at the Battle of Gettysburg. You're in this original position. Doles is advancing to your front. You see this 30-foot high knoll in front of you that looks like it might give you an advantage, not only for your infantry, but also for your artillery. What do you do here? Well, as we know, Barlow is going to make the decision to move forward. So I think now let's kind of unpack and discuss a little bit why he maybe makes this move to his front on July 1st. Yeah, so again, I'll echo what I just said a few moments ago. Barlow never explicitly says why he moved forwards. That leaves a lot of room for interpretation among guys like Eric and I and among listeners like yourself. What I think, and again, which we've touched on, there's threats coming and Doles is the immediate threat. And I do think Barlow, perhaps as was said afterwards, he kind of got carried away by the spirit, the ardor of the, of the moment. I do think Barlow moves forward to engage the enemy. I believe in the way I've always interpreted this and I cover it on stages, Barlow really moves forward piecemeal. There isn't a moment, I don't think, where he just says to the whole division, go forward. I think it's really kind of a piecemeal thing. The first thing he does is he pushes forward skirmishers from the 17th Connecticut to cross Rock Creek, occupy the bridge at Rock Creek, and cover some of the ground at the Josiah Benner farm. He pushes forward some of them. And then progressively, more and more of Leopold von Gilsa's brigade is moved forward as well. So I think it kind of starts with von Gilsa. Then he's going to move forward Wilkinson's battery. And we'll talk about that, I think. And then eventually Adelbert Ames's brigade is going to come up to support all of them. So I think it's kind of skirmishers go first. Then he puts the artillery on the high ground. Well, you need somebody to support that battery. So the infantry, the remaining infantry goes forward. And I think before you know it, the entire division is either on the knoll or in and along Rock Creek as skirmishers. And if we look at this, this certainly is not a rash decision. Now you can agree or disagree with what he does, but I think if anything, there's a logical progression in how they're moving forward. As Jim said, skirmishers go first, then the infantry, then the artillery, then more infantry. And also, if you look at the position, it is a decent platform for artillery, especially if you're looking at Dole's men as your threat. By this point, you may even have Jones's men arriving, Jones's artillery battalion to the north. So you're looking at this, hey, it's the only artillery he's got out here. We want to maximize their positioning. In Barlow's mind, that's the place to do it. Yeah, I agree. The one thing 
that is lacking is it clearly seems to be a violation of his orders because he he remember he hasn't been told to hold specific ground but he has been told to stay connected to the third division and the thing that alarms shirts more than anything when he learns about this is that that connection has been broken so the other thing that shirts then is going to have to order to try to get these guys connected again is he's going to take chris's brigade kind of out of their their support position and move them essentially across the Carlisle Road and connect onto Barlow's left and kind of be that connector between Barlow's left and again the right of the third division. So that's going to bring Chris into the action here because without Chris, Barlow's small division clearly does not have enough men to support the ground that Barlow has extended them into. So if Barlow now moved forward to the knoll that now bears his name, I think this is kind of a good point to hit the pause button. This is where we will pick the story up in episode two on Barlow's knoll. So I think this is kind of a good natural point to kind of end it here for right now. Holy cow, Eric, we're kicking off season two with a 90 minute episode that is only part one of two. Like, did we even get any extended spring training before we started the season here? I feel I feel totally fatigued at this point. Well, in our defense, we had a long playoff run in season one and we're going right back into the season. So we've, you know, it'll take us a little time to get our legs underneath. Yeah, I kind of thought we were going to have an off season. We just recorded our last episode like three weeks ago. What kind of off season was this? Hey, the super fans demanded we come back. Yeah, that's right. So as we begin to take this episode home and kind of put a bow on everything here, we want to once again remind you of our special podcast tour on May 9th coming up. Uh, What if Jackson was at Gettysburg? Hope you can make that out. But Jim, there's another special event that you have that you want to talk about here coming up as well. Oh yeah. Hey, thanks for mentioning that, Eric. As we said at the outset, 2020 is going to be a huge year with a lot of big events. Another event that I'm proud to be a part of will be on Saturday, March 28th, 2020 at the National Civil War Museum in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And I'm proud to co-organize with friends our second annual George Armstrong Custer Civil War and Indian Wars Symposium. We did the first annual one in Gettysburg last year. We've moved this one to Wayne Mott's Civil War Museum in Harrisburg. Big time schedule of speakers. I'll be speaking at it. Our friend and battlefield guide, Chris Army. Wayne Mott's will be there. Our friend and historian, Bob O'Neill. And heavyweight historians, Paul Andrew Hutton and Jeff Wirt will also be on the agenda. So again, it's the National Civil War Museum's second annual custom. Indian Wars Civil War Seminar. Contact www.nationalcivilwarmuseum.org for registration details. But again, I hope we'll uh, see a lot of people out there for that one. I would expect this one is going to sell out, so sign up quick. Thanks, Eric. So we once again want to thank our sponsor, uh, Michael Homula and RPM Search Group for their support of this episode. And we do want to make note that if you are interested in sponsoring future episodes, you can reach out to us by email or on our social media. You can find us on Facebook at the Battle of Gettysburg podcast, on Instagram at the Battle of Gettysburg podcast, on Twitter at Gettysburg Pod, and you can email us at gettysburgpodcast at gmail.com. So if you are interested in sponsoring us, reach out to us either on our social media or email, and we're happy to uh, see what we can work out with you. 
We would also like to note that Jim and I are both licensed battlefield guides here at Gettysburg National Military Park. And we also frequently speak to groups and Civil War roundtables across the United States and around the world. So if you're interested in a tour or having us speak to your roundtable or your group, please reach out to us. Let us know if you want one of us or both of us. Let us know. and We'll see what we can work out. We're happy to take the Battle of Gettysburg podcast on the road uh, if you're interested. Closing things out, we once again want to thank the Reliance Mind Saloon for graciously hosting us as they did for Season 1 and into Season 2. Certainly, if you're in town, stop by, show your support because they've been incredibly supportive to us. Also, we want to thank you, the listeners, uh, as we've often joked, but we say it with a bit of seriousness as well. Without you, we're just two guys sitting in a bar talking about the Battle of Gettysburg. I wonder where we got that from. That's a good question. Where did we get that Mm. from? Uh, We'll go back and check the archives. But nonetheless, you have helped us far exceed wherever we thought the show would do. And certainly you're going to propel us into 2020, what we think is going to be an even better season. So thank you very much. To close things out, our next episode will be part two of Barlow's Knoll, where we will continue this story and see how it plays out. We'll also introduce those pesky Confederates onto the battlefield as well. So once again, we want to thank you for listening and we will see you next time. Yeah, thanks everyone. Take care. And remember, part two of Barlow's Knoll coming up next.